Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday evening. I'm going to use this opportunity now to see if I can do the biography for this week to get it out of the way. And today is the 5th of Teves, I guess. So, uh has to be the art side of Shlomo Mocha, so I think I'm going to do him today. One of the most weird and uh, possibly sublime characters in the strange history of Jewish people. Today's, tonight's uh, podcast is being sponsored uh, by uh, Yonah Batal Stefanski in memory of his father. The art was the other day. He was kind enough to be a sponsor of two podcasts. This past one and the current one that we're doing now. And very appreciative, as always. And uh, looking for other sponsors for coming for the rest of this week. Now, as I said, today I'm not going to be dealing with the usual rabbi type or something. I've been uh, a character altogether different. Uh, but, uh, you know, due to, different due to circumstances. We're dealing with Shlomo Molcho, who is from the time of the Moranos. Uh, I've lately talked a lot about these uh, Portuguese Jews. For example, last time I did uh, Menashe in Israel, and the, uh, not long ago I did, uh, you know, maybe, what's his name, the Marstam, and people like that. This is what you call the 16th century, uh, first part of the 16th century, and our hero lived from 1500 to 1532. He was only 32 when he died, so he had a short life. He burned at the stake. That's right, burned at the stake. Uh, so 32 is a short life but unbelievably dramatic in every respect. This is uh, someone born in Portugal, Lisbon. As I explained many times before, but I'll nevertheless take 60 seconds to cause the parsha, as they say. The Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492. Um, you could leave or stay, but if you stayed, you have to convert. Uh, most of those who left, half the Jews stayed, but of the ones who didn't stay, most of those went, uh, shall we say, east, from Spain towards the direction of the Middle East, either to the Turkish Empire or Israel or Middle East, places like that, for the most part. Um, but some, these are the Jews who are Sephardim to Horim, they don't want to convert, uh, went to Portugal, which is to the west, the country next door to Spain, in the, in the same peninsula. Because in 1492, the king of Portugal said, you can come here and I won't make you convert. But five years later, he changed his mind. And they say, you have to convert now. And they said, the whole shot was you allow us to come here in the first place on the basis that we don't have to convert. He said, that was yesterday, but things have changed, and now I want you to convert now. They said, but even, um, so then let us leave. No, you can't leave. You have to convert now. They said, even the king of Spain, the queen of Spain, let us leave. You know, they didn't physically make it. According to Catholic Church, you can't make somebody uh, convert, you know, by putting a gun to his head. He said, we're doing it. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Skipping through all the long history of it, that's what we're doing. And he physically forced them to convert using all kind of physical pressure. Um, so this is what happened. And these Jews obviously were very angry about it and very hurt because they're the from ones. Otherwise, they would have converted back in Spain. And from these groups came the, what we call the conversos, the Moranos, the Anusim, and all the rest of it. 
because a lot of them still kept their Jewish identity even though they converted. Many did not. Many just, as happens, once they converted, became Goyim. They did, honestly. But many did not. So our hero was born in 1500. That means he was born three years after the event I just described to such parents. No, his parents uh, were in Spain. They ran away to Portugal uh, eight years before his birth. They lived for uh, five years as Jews in Portugal. Uh, then they were forcibly converted by physical force. And three, three years later, he was born. You hear what I'm saying? In Lisbon, the capital. Now, this story can only take place in Portugal, as you'll see in a minute, because Portugal at that time, believe it or not, was a world power and had prov uh, colonies and bases all over the world, literally. So our hero grew up in a converso family as a guy, a Catholic, Portuguese. He was obviously very bright. I would say he was a genius, a brilliant and uh, therefore, he did, he aced all the the classes, and he got a first class secular education and Christian education. So, in other words, by the standards of Portugal, the fifteen hundreds, he had an excellent education. Uh, and uh, I would say he was he he aced all the tests. Therefore, he did very very well in school in such places. And so, once he graduated, uh, he was sufficiently. Um, grounded in the Portuguese culture and all the rest of it, even though he came from a Jewish background, but he was able to get a good job with the king. So he must have had a winning personality and must have been quite brilliant. Uh, and uh, they say, they got a job being a, the secretary of the Supreme Court. I see somebody now wants to say he himself was on the Supreme Court. I can't believe somebody who was 19 or 20 years old was on the Supreme Court. But nevertheless, he rose to a high position, which is most unusual for somebody born Jewish or at least born of Jewish parents. So I would say today, he took seriously his uh, high school education, his college education, university education, all the rest of it. He probably went to Coimbra University, I imagine. That was a big place. And he's a Portuguese Catholic. He's a new Christian, as they call it. In other words, there's no question about his background. And he had a Geisha name. The way it works is that when the Jews converted, in this case, they forcibly converted, uh, it was considered a big mitzvah on the part of uh, Gaim to convert a Jew, and therefore leading noble families of Portugal were like the godfathers at the baptism and stuff like that. So in his case, it was Paris, Paris. So his name was Diogo Paris or Jojo Paris. Diogo is James, in other words, like the brother of Yashka. And uh, so he was thoroughly a guy. Now, had life continued that way, I don't know if he had anything with the Judaism. My understanding is he did not. On the other hand, only a blockhead doesn't know that your parents, three years before you were born, were forcibly <laughs> converted from Judaism to Christianity. So he knows he's got to grow up with this weirdness in his background. Okay? And remember, he aced all the tests. He he got the highest marks. And that's why he got a very good job with the, with the king, with the government. Uh, so this is just a very unusual biography altogether. It's not your guttle type, you know, born from family, went to Yeshiva, the young age, was Eloy and all the rest of that. None of that. Zero. Now, the time we're talking about is the 1520s, because uh, that's when he's 20 years old and gets a job. So far, so good for him. And had nothing happened, he would have been one of these ex-Jews or somebody from J Jewish background, would have been a big, big shot in Portugal. And who knows, maybe he could have risen even higher. Apparently, he not only was, shall I say, 
uh, uh, intellectually brilliant, but he must have had a charm, a winning personality, because you wouldn't be Matzlich in the court of Portugal with your background unless you knew how to turn on the charm. And so we would say today it's a person with a natural, a charismatic personality, right? I imagine him being tall, dark, and handsome in the Portuguese Jewish way, and uh, therefore a real charmer and all the rest of it. I'm saying all this for a reason. Now, when he was 25 years old, something most extraordinary happened, uh, and that is that this guy showed up in Portugal named David Rubini, very famous and controversial individual, uh, who claimed um, to be Jewish and to be the ambassador of a Jewish kingdom uh, far away, who now came to establish an alliance with Portugal to fight the Muslims. Uh, this is extremely weird. And to this day, nobody knows exactly what's Tutsa. I'll tell you my opinion. Whenever I do this, I always repeat myself. All I can t- tell you is my understanding of all this business. First of all, uh, we have to understand that the 1500s, the 16th century as we call it, was a time of a major series of wars between the Christians and the Muslims. Okay? The main Muslim power was the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Uh, between 1500, let's say, and uh, 1560, something like that, maybe 1570s, the Turkish Empire was in a constant war and usually winning against the Christians. The Turkish Empire, many people don't realize, was primarily a European empire. The Turks were a Muslim group that already in the 1200s perfected a military state, right? A military state, and um, uh, by the standards of of that era, in terms of efficiency and weaponry and military training and junk like that, and little by little, uh, they had a very ruthless system. They conquered a big chunk of Christian Europe, specifically the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Okay, so the countries that you and I today call Greece, um, Bulgaria, uh, Serbia, Albania, uh, eventually even uh, Romania and Hungary, these kind of areas, which is large, were over the course of time, in one war after another, conquered by the Ottoman Turks which means that they were Christian populations ruled by the Muslims. Whether they liked it or not, and they didn't like it. Uh, that means that the Ottoman Turks were able to do something that the Muslims were not able to do beforehand, which was bust into Europe. Well, I know, yeah, I mean, I can't expect you to know all this. The Islamic religion started in the 600s. <clears throat> Muhammad died in around 632, I think. And his successors over the next century, more or less, less, uh, went on to conquer a gigantic empire from the Atlantic Ocean to India. That's huge. But they were not really able to break into Europe successfully. Europe remained Christian. Now, they did get into Spain, and that is true, but that's as far as it went. And pretty soon, the Spanish Christians started pushing back. They weren't able to break into Europe. Uh, the part that we call the Eastern Europe was a Byzantine Empire, which held the Muslims back. And so if you go to the 600s, the 700s, the 800s, 900s, 1000s, 11, 12, 1200s, um, the, you know, the Middle East is Muslim, and, you know, Af- North Africa and the Middle East, and the Europe is Christian, Shun. But starting in the 1300s, under one particular little group, the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims started uh, conquering pieces of Europe, one after the other, 
and nobody could stop him. It's a long story, but starting in the 1200s, the 1300s, the 1400s especially, the Imamish took over huge parts of Europe. And therefore, if you're living in Europe in the 1500s, so on the one hand, um, you got the usual stupid politics going on all the time. This is the time of Henry VIII. This is all the movies and miniseries are now. You know, it's Henry VIII, it's Charles V, it's Francis I, it's this war and that war and the Protestant Reformation, blah, blah, blah. And they have all kinds of things going on, the regular European politics with the intrigues and the wars and the marriages and the alliances and the anti-alliances and poisons and all the rest of it. But in addition to all that, you have the Muslim threat. It really was possible that the Turks might conquer Europe. It was a real thing. Now, it didn't happen, but it came close. The main reason is because the ruler of Turkey, they had two very strong rulers, Selim and then Suleiman. Selim was like, I don't know, 1500 to 1520, I think. And Suleiman was uh, 1520 to 1566, a long time. And these were two very tough and able generals. They conquered a huge area. And so Suleiman, for example, and Selim conquered the whole Middle East. You hear what I said? What you and I today call Israel, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, North Africa, blah, 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 all that stuff. Right? They conquered a gigantic area. And plus, they also invite her in Europe. So Suleiman conquered Hungary, for example. And he came close. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. In 1525, he almost captured Vienna. If he would capture Vienna, it was a long siege that he just lost by a little bit. If he would capture Vienna, he would be able to break into Europe. And Europe today might be Muslim. Believe you me, the Muslims today, you know, they're living in Europe, they're dreaming of making this happen now through uh, demography and population. They want to change Europe and make it a Muslim area. But that time, he's going to do by military conquest. So, What's in the Avira is a constant name, the constant idea that there's a massive war going on that could blow up into huge proportions anytime between the Christians on the one hand, who are disunited, and the Turks on the other, who are united. Okay? This is the area we're talking about. And if it's the 1520s, Suleiman captured, um, oh, I don't know, ba- uh, Belgrade, I think, in 1521, I think, and Rhodes, uh... Uh, yeah, I don't have to give you all the details, but no, he was already making progress, like, serious progress. And I think fifteen twenty-five. I remember whenever it was, he the Battle of Mohash, he conquered Hungary. They, if you were Christian, it looked like the Turks again invited you right Now, Meidoch Giso, right? Uh, the in fourteen ninety-two, the Spanish had kicked the Muslims out of Spain. Uh, well, was, the Christians conquered all Spain. That's when they kicked out the Jews. They didn't kick out the Muslims yet. They did that later, but they ruled the whole area. And then the Spanish went on the offensive to try to conquer North Africa and make it Catholic. So they conquered a chilek of um, oh, uh, Morocco and a chilek of uh, Algeria, and they had big wars in Tunisia. So it was, this is a mahumus, you understand? Mahumus. Now, why am I bothering you to give this history lesson? You want to understand Shlomo Mocha, in my opinion, if you don't understand at least the basic outline I just laid over here. Because in the middle of all this stuff, a guy shows up in, in Italy on a white horse wearing fancy clothes with a couple of avodim looking like a prince or something and with a big flag with a mug and dominant or, or Hebrew anyway, and dressed up to the nines. And he says, I am a representative of a far-off Jewish kingdom. And 
uh, I want to make an alliance with the Christians to fight the Turks and conquer Palestine for the Jewish people. No, it's Theodore Herzl in the 1500s. Except this guy was uh, Shomer Shabbos and all the rest of it. But he's trying to rely on the fact that the Christians, let me put it this way, there was no Jewish kingdom out there. I think, in my opinion, it was in the 16th century that um, they published the famous letter from the king of the Khazars to Khazdeh bin Shabud back in the 10th century in Spain when Khazdeh bin Shabud, who was a very Khashavid, the most Khashavid Jew in Spain and was sort of like the foreign minister and the physician of the caliph back at that time in Spain, actually, actually had correspondence with really what really was a Jewish kingdom in the Crimea called the Khazars, the Khuzarim, as the basis of the book later on called Khuzari, which is imaginary, but it's based on a fact. And there was once upon a time a powerful Jewish kingdom out there. And so this guy, I think, got this idea. He was from uh, Israel or somewhere over there in the east, very dark complected. And he said he's coming from something like that. I think he said from the Aseris HaShavatim in some fashion or another. And uh, basically... The enemy of my enemy is my is, is my friend. That's the only language they understand in the utter ruthless power politics of the 16th century. There's no liberalism or anything like that. So basically, we're fighting the Muslims, you're fighting the Muslims, let's hook up together. And, you know, when he met the Pope and the Jews in Italy, they're like freaked out. Is this guy real? Is he not real? We never heard this before. Um, are you coming? Are you messianic? Are you, are you telling me Mashiach site is here or not? And this guy wasn't clear. He deliberately obfuscated the whole business. And um, like I say, it's impossible. Now, what was his uh, real game plan? Let's let's give him credit for being what he ostensibly said. He, his plan was to go to the Pope, to go to the king of this and the king of that, get their permission and financial support. And he would raise a Jewish army and uh, get weapons for the Jewish army. And then they would fight... I mean, I don't know, when push came to shove, he, it would come out that there's no Jewish kingdom out there. I can't understand exactly what he had in mind, but this is the language he was talking about. David Rubini. Uh David Rubini. Now, I'm speaking from the year 2020, looking back. So it looks like a weird thing. But don't do that. Let's look at it from the 500 years ago. Let's look at it putting on the glasses, not of the year 2020, but of the year 1520 or 1525. Uh, Jews, if you're from, are asking themselves why is Claudius also downtrodden? Things were particularly bad in the early 1500s. The Jews had just been kicked out of Spain, which had been the, they thought was their real home. They felt so grounded in it. Iker Makam Torah in many respects. The Jews were kicked out of every other country of Europe by that time, out of England and France and the Netherlands and most of Germany and most of Italy, etc., etc., etc. So things were really, really bad. Um, why is God doing this I mean we're being ground to the dust and um, there are different ways of understanding that you know I mean one way is to simply say like this listen you're sinners you know, that's one shot uh, there's a cause get over it another another way of looking at it is it's Ikvisa the Mashiach the Chevle Mashiach the, the troubles we're going through now can only be understood as immediately precedent to the coming of Mashiach. 
Now, it's much better to think that way. What's the right word? Better. It's more um, uh, empowering. It's psychologically better. And a lot of the Jews in Spain convinced themselves that the uh, expulsion from Spain is part of the Hebla Mashiach. Most famous are Barbanel, but he's not the only one. But all you have to do is read the Barbanel in the book of Daniel, and he's all applying it to 1492 in the aftermath. And a belt of the um, Sephardim did that. Okay? That this, somehow or other, it's all Ikvis and the Mashiach, and uh, we know things are going to be real bad. Uh, you might regard this as Gogo Mogung in some fashion, you know, however you interpret it, but to give a messianic uh, twist to it. Now, today we know it's not true, but at that time they thought it's true. Okay? Now, here comes somebody out of nowhere in the middle of all these wars in the Meshuggah world, and he says, I represent a Jewish kingdom. We're going to have an army, and we're going to have a mighty power, and we're going to take back Eretz Yisrael, and we want the Christians to help us based on the principle of the enemy. My enemy is my friend. So you're the enemy of the Turks, and we're the enemy of the Turks, he said. And so that should work it on that, in that way. Now, I'll tell you right now, from a Christian perspective, this is nuts. Why would they want a Jewish kingdom? Get it? Look, this week is Christmas. If we're right, they're wrong. I'll say it again. If we're right, they're wrong. So why should it be that they should want a Jewish kingdom, especially in the 1500s, be a from kingdom? It's hard to understand this. But here's the point I want to get across. I'm giving you my analysis of it. And was the analysis of many sober-minded Jews at that time. But many, many other Jews said like this. This guy is amazing. We Jews are always the receivers of violence. You know, this guy looks like he might be a Melech or a Ben Melech or Achishel Melech. And he's talking these big terms. And the kings are taking him seriously. The Pope didn't throw him out like a nut. And eventually he came to Portugal. Hear what I said? He came to Portugal. And he, you know, landed on a ship. And he came dressed all fancy. And he had servants. And he had a, a flag with Jewish stuff on it. And... He did. He acted the way like the Prince of Wales, you know, some big deal, and um, you know, in a carriage and so on and so forth. So many Jews now in Italy and elsewhere, they, they were just you know, uh, what should I say, beyond excited. You understand? So maybe he shouldn't have raised their hopes. Maybe he should have raised their hopes, but it raised their hopes and they were excited. They said, "In Chalami is Takamashir time," and that enabled them. To say, oh, all the suffering we've been going on recently, especially we in Portugal, who only a few years ago, within memory, were forced, mamish forced at gunpoint, at, at, at knife point, to convert, to baptize, to, to live lives of terrible, uh, you know, anguish. And were forced to have a bazaar because they saw Catholic like a bazaar. And all this stuff we've been suffering, and there wasn't Inquisition yet. There was not Inquisition. But. Everybody didn't like them. Their life is so tough. Oh, but if it's Gogo Mogog, if it's a Mashiach site, that explains it all. That would justify it all. And all I can tell you is that when this guy showed up, a lot of the young Jews flocked to him. Now, when I say young Jews, they're Goyim. They're Catholics, but they're Jewish. In other words, the young people who were the children of the conversos who had been forced to convert. You understand? Like our hero, who was 25 years old. People of his, you know, time. He was born in 1500. This story happened in 1525. So people like him, 25, 20, 15, 18. If you're young, you're totally aware that your family was Jewish. You're totally aware that your family was forced to convert. And here's somebody. And the guy treated him with respect. He went and was received formally by the king of Portugal at court. 
which is extraordinary. Uh, to the Portuguese, it didn't sound so crazy. And I'm going to tell you why. As I said before, in the 1500s, Portugal was a gigantic power, even though it's a small country. They had uh, colonies and bases everywhere. This is the golden age of Portugal. They had navies that did what other navies didn't do. Remember Magellan and all that? Uh, Portugal had colonies and trading bases all over Africa, all along the west of Africa, all along the east of Africa. That's Vasco da Gama. They had places, Portuguese forts and territories in the Arab world, in the Persian Gulf. They had wars against the Turkish Sultan, Portugal versus the Turkish Sultan over territory in Iraq, in the Persian Gulf. People don't know this sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? But the Portuguese knew it. They had fortresses and colonies, I don't know, all over India, you know, the, the, the what do you call it, the West Coast and East Coast of India, into Asia, don't they have Macau, you know, next to Hong Kong? I mean, they were unbelievable. Seriously. And Brazil, of course, they're unbelievable. You could be Portuguese and go around the world. Now, when you've been around the world and you're Portuguese, obviously, if you're living in the 1500s, you would like to convert the Gonzabel to Catholic. And they did their best to do that. But they're quite aware that out there is a zillion Chinese and Philippines and uh, Malaysia and this and that and the other and Arabia and Pakistan and all this other business. You know, they're quite aware more than most Europeans of the varieties out there. And so if you say, you know, somewhere all the way out in the east somewhere is a Jewish kingdom, there's no different than some of the stuff we've seen in Africa elsewhere. It's Shaykh. Yeah, we don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe no. It's Shaykh. It's possible. So they took it seriously, and they actually conducted negotiations. Now, our hero was 25 years old. He had been a success. As I said before, he aced the test. He got a great job with the government. He was liked by the king, which is unusual. In my opinion, this is King John, the one who came after the king who forced him. And I think King John, in my opinion, wanted to show... I mean, the Portuguese couldn't help but have some knowledge that they had forced the Jews to convert, which wasn't right according to the Catholic doctrine. They, they wouldn't back off, but I think he wanted to encourage any Jew who is now Catholic, who is being Masliach, and want to help him be Masliach, to encourage a positive reception of Christianity. See, you'll make it in this new environment. And so I think that's why he was good to people like Lord Hero Jojo uh, of Paris. And uh, But wait a minute, when this guy, David Ruvini, walked around, he came over to me, he's like this, I'm Jewish. Uh, tell me about Judaism. I don't know anything. You're amazing. You're brother of a king of a Jewish kingdom. I want to return to my people. See, there was all that Catholic stuff shed in a second, right? And David Ruvaini was quite aware that one of the things he can't do, if he wants to be Masliach in his campaign to win the Portuguese to an actual alliance with whoever he had in mind, and somehow rather help him raise an army, one thing he can't do is try to bring Jews back to Yiddishkeit. Because from a Catholic perspective, that's the biggest of era. You get what I'm saying? He came to Portugal based on the idea, I'm not going to affect the Moranos, I'm not going to treat Mashpi on anybody, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try to make anybody from, uh, you know, which was which was a trick, because he didn't try, but they naturally came to him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it, was a, it was, and he was a from guy. It was a strange, a strange uh, situation. Imagine a Lababacher comes somewhere and they say, well, you can stay here, but you can't. Do anything to make anybody the slightest bit Jewish. He says, what am I doing here? Okay? But in this case, 
And he said, I have a larger Zionist project in mind. Well, our hero started chaperoning him. I said, I want to hear about from Yiddish guy. I want to talk to you. And he was too open about it because, you see, he hadn't been born, how shall I say, a Jewish. He'd been born a guy. Now, I mean, he knew he was Jewish. But his whole education and upbringing was that of a guy. And <clears throat> how should I explain it? He didn't have the Jewish uh, uh, scaredy catism, fears. You understand? Uh, you know, I've said many times, it's a very famous Ibn Ezra who says, why was it that Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jew of all time, uh, highest of Ruchnius, uh, had public school education, was raised by Pharaoh's daughter in a Gaisha situation, and only became from later in life. Uh, it's weird. The opposite. Moshe Rabbeinu should have been born into the biggest Rebbe family, should have had, you know, surrounded himself with total Yiddishkeit, like Rabbi Shua, shake his, uh, his, his cradle in the base medrash, and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't. It was the other way around. Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the midst of Tumah. Now, there are some frummies out there who'll say, I guess, no, he's really raised by his mother, and Pyro's daughter let it happen, and, and even though he's Pharaoh's daughter, he was raised in Meisharim, and so on and so forth. But that's not true. Moshe is raised in Pharaoh's family. So, uh, why is it? And Ibn Ezra says two reasons, and I'll just share one of them. And he says, Hashem needed that whoever's going to be the leader of Monica Israel can't have the Jewish uh, scaredy cat uh, uh, phenomenon. You can't be a chicken. Jewish are chickens because they're living in Gaulas, they're beaten up by other people, they have uh, have this mentality of a survival. So basically, Jewish guy drives by, he sees a, 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 a monkey going, going, he's like, yes, I'm not getting involved. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't see nothing, like, keep driving, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu grew up with a, in, uh, in public school. You call me a name, I bust your face, <laughs> if I can, okay? I don't take nothing off anybody. Uh, and therefore, indeed, when Moses the prince goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew, he knew his way around the the, the, the court, the, the you know, the backyard. He decked the guy, killed him, buried him in the sand. He knew what to do right away. The Jew would have said, no, "I'm not getting involved." So the same thing with our hero. He grew up with a Portuguese geisha background. And so he didn't have the common sense to say, I better not ask questions openly about the Yiddish guy and all the rest of it. Might get the guy angry at me. He was oblivious to that. And uh, a very passionate personality. And therefore he bugged and shepherded this guy, David Rubain, tell me about Yiddish guy. David Rubain wouldn't do so. And he came to the conclusion, the reason is because he's not Jewish, even though halachically he's Jewish. But I don't think the Moranos necessarily knew the Dinim. Okay? I don't think they knew the Dinim. You and I know that didn't. Once a Jew, always a Jew. And uh, therefore he came to the conclusion he's going to convert to Judaism. Well, how do you convert to Judaism? Remember, these Portuguese Jews had no access to Yiddish guy. How do you convert to Judaism? So he circumcised himself. Now you can just imagine what that's like at the age of 25. Okay? So that's what I mean by how passionate and devoted and determined and crazy he was. Uh, obsessed to do the right, you know, to, to go all the way for Yiddish guy, which is something he didn't even know about. Well, uh, so, for somebody to circumcise themselves, first of all, is a wild and crazy thing. Who can do that? Second of all, I mean, Abba Mavina had trouble with that. It says, Hashem had to help him. You know, who can do that? So, look how uh, um, you know, determined he was. And, uh, and se- uh, the good thing he didn't hurt himself. And second of all, when this got out, this was a shock. 
to the Portuguese court uh, because a Jew is not supposed to go back to Judaism. You know, that means this guy, Dave Rooney's bad news. Itaka ruined his chances for being Masliak with the Portuguese. And for our hero, he began to realize within a short time, better me get the heck out of Portugal, you know? There was an Inquisition yet, otherwise he would have been literally toast, literally. But he ran away from Portugal. But he wants to encounter the Judaism that he had tidbits of from Dave Ruvaini, but he wants to get the real thing. So it's quite a story, because the guy had everything going for him, you understand? He could have had a very good life back in Portugal. He was on the rise. And uh, he gave it up without a thought, and uh, jumped on a ship, and went to the Turkish Empire, the other end of the story, like I told you with the Marshtam some time ago, that there was a constant trickle of Turkish, um, Portuguese Jews throughout the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, uh, running away from Portugal in order to come to where the Turks were ruling so they could come out of the closet and be Jewish. Here's a classic example. Now, the guy I'm talking about is determined, capable, brilliant, tall, dark, and handsome, passionate. You know, you see the, the character. And so when he comes to Turkey or the Turkish Empire, he went first to uh, these, went to the Balkans, uh, Monastir, which was a Sephardic air, uh, city in Yugoslavia. And then uh, and then he ended up in, in Salonika. These are places in the 1520s that are cooking because uh, they're, the Turks are now ruling everything. The Jews have it okay under the Turks. You can come out of closet and be totally Jewish. Uh, the people who ran away from Spain, by now it's settled primarily in places like Salonika and Istanbul. And Salonika was a big Mokham Torah, as I talked about a couple weeks ago with the Marshdam. And so for our hero, by the time he got to uh, Turkey, especially when he came to Salonika, he could jump in both feet uh, to learn all about Yiddishkeit. So the best example, the best way I could describe it today is imagine a guy who was Jewish, halachically, who grew up in a monastery, but now he discovered his Jewish background, and he wants to plunge 150% into this, and so he comes to uh, Punavish. Right? I'm serious. You know, something like that. And he said, I want to get it all. And uh, apparently, I don't quite understand this, but if he was a genius, it's possible. He comes to Yeshiva there, uh, and it wasn't Malcolm Torah, and there were Yeshivas there, and You've seen this, and I've seen this. Sometimes you find a BT, a Baal Shuba, who only becomes from at the age of 20, let's say, for example, argument uh, 25. You know something? By 30, he's as good as anybody else in Yeshiva. Sometimes better. Have you seen that? I've seen that. You know, ah, it's not fair. They started later on. Yeah, but if you really have the brain, and you're smart, and you put in the time, and does this flesh all the rest of it, if you really have the fire, you can do it. Right? Uh, actually, it makes the FFBs feel uh, depressed. You know, here we are plugging away all the life, and this guy jumps in like a parachute, you know, at the age of 20 or 30, whatever it is. I've seen people like this, and uh, within a short time, they're ahead of the kolel. You know, they're, they're as good or better as anybody else, because it's a matter of brains and determination, is this flesh, and so on and so forth. And so apparently he learned up a storm real fast. Uh, it seems a little too fast for me, but real fast. Uh, so already I'm telling you a wild story. Right? Now, by the way, the story I'm describing is not so far is not unique. It will get unique, but it's not unique. There were many others. I won't say many, but there was a fair number of others who had the same experience in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s. 
that they ran away. And when they came and arrived in the Jewish area, they jumped in with both feet into learning. They were passionate about it. That's what they wanted to do. And within a relatively short time, became Gedolim. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, guys say like this, I'm sitting down, I'm going to Old Tanakh, then I'm going to Old Mishnah, then I'm going to Old Shas, then I'm going over Shonim, you know, it, it, it could happen. You'd have to be a determined guy to do it, but the type of individual I'm describing, the typology, that is the definition of a determined individual, is it not? And so our hero is doing this between the ages of 25 and 27, 20, yeah, I don't know. When he's in Salonika, he's in, like I say, the yeshiva world of Salonika, which was a big deal at that time. And he's meeting with, he's, he's learning with Riyos of Taitzak, who was the Rebbe, I think, of the Marshtam. A big Sephardish guys. You know, it's a big Sephardim. He himself is Sephardish, correct? He's Portuguese. Parents are from Spain. He's Sephardi. He meets Riyos of Cairo, Shlomo Alkabetz. These are all people hanging around Salonika and these yeshivas and the yeshiva world. The yeshiva wealth of the Balkans of the 1520s, these are the hot items, right? Yosef you know, Kara is a hot item. Okay? The Alkabets, wrote the Chododi, many others, and they see what I just told you. They say, wow, here's a guy just came out of nowhere, came from nothing background. He's obviously had a Balkishran, but come from nothing background. He learned up a storm, right? He learned up a storm. So they were, you know, amazed with him, okay? Uh, but also, to, I, I don't know exactly how, I'm not sure. I mean, there are theories about it. But he also jumps into Kabbalah with both feet. Okay? So, that's already a trick. You know, as far as I'm concerned, Nigla will take you a couple years, right? But you in the Nister. Remember, this is a time before the uh, the uh, Zohar was even printed. Matter of fact, it's before the Zohar was actually formed in the literary form that we have it today. Because that was done by the printers later on in the 1500s. It's the era where everything's Xaviyaz. You know, manuscripts and all the rest of it. Riyosu Taitzik wasn't a couple. Um, and he's really into this. But the type of individual I'm talking about is not into it. He jumps in with both feet, uh, you know, with, with tremendous fire. And given his own personal background, it's not surprising that the way he puts together the Nigla and the Nister and, uh, and the Kabbalah Plus, the times in which he's living. It's the 1520s. In the, the year before, um, that year, 1525, the year before, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent had almost conquered Vienna. Uh, the Turks were at the gates of Italy. Uh, they were at the gates of Germany. Uh, looked very much like, you know, they might win. On the other hand, the Christians might get their act together and conquer the Turks. Well, what, if you're from Jew, especially the type I'm describing, if I'm talking about real international current events, which were real, the Turks might destroy the Christians, the Christians might destroy the, the, the Turks. What does it sound to you? What does it sound to me? Gogo Magog. You see what I'm saying? Done it? Right? It's like I read you from Chagah, you know, Hafakti as a Mamlochus and all the rest of it, you know, to, to build uh, the base of Migdash. Sounds like you're living in and Mashiach. It certainly sounds like a Gogomogu situation. And he gets so deep. Anything he did, you know, I didn't make, I didn't meet him, obviously, but it's clear to me, anything he did, we do with unbelievable passion and intensity. And uh, pretty soon, you know, he's going around giving these drushes, uh, as, explaining things, LP, Nigla and Nister, especially Nister, the way he sees it, as what I just described. Rebosai, 
I just want to tell you, we're an infant in the Mashiach. It's not an expression. It's mamish. Look at the world. Look at the Turks. Look at the Christians. Look at the Pope. You see which way he's going. By the way, 1527, all this is Nogea, which was the second year after he ran away, he was in Turkey, Rome, which was headquarters of Esau, was almost destroyed, was sacked in uh, in wars that the Pope had with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but the famous event in history where the Emperor and the Pope, even though they're both Catholic and they're both opposed to the Protestants, had a fight between each other. Uh, I won't bore you with the details. And an army of the Emperor came and captured Rome and almost burned the place down, sacked everything. It's called the Bizas Rome, the sack of Rome, the plunder of Rome. Uh, you know, the city was went through hell. And the Pope was reduced to, uh, you know, living in a room in the Castle San Angelo, you know, afraid for his life and all the rest of it. So, me today, looking back from the year 2020, is an interesting episode in, in, in European history. But if you're a Jewish, and especially Shlomo Mocho or somebody like that, oh, Rome is falling. I mean, this is like Nochum, you know, the fall of Ninveh or something. You know, it's it's Mamashik, can't you see? The Christians against the, 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 the Turks, the fall of Rome, the rise of the Protestants, is all signs, Ikvis and the Mashiach. That's how he sees it. And he was an unbelievably passionate speaker, and so he became a Darshan. He went around from places, saying the Mashiach is here. Now, with the Sephardim especially, but not only with the Sephardim, we noticed from Shabtai 3, one of the best ways of getting Balabatim to become from is to convince him the Mashiach is coming. I know it sounds funny, but I don't mean it to be funny. It's 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 weird, but uh, a lot of people don't ever stop doing bad things until they think, Mamish, this is it. Uh, that's why when Shabtai 3 was around later on, uh, a lot of people became from. <laughs> they started keeping more missives because they thought, uh-oh, you know, the day after tomorrow, Mashiach will be here, and then, we, then, then we'll be judged. So he had that influence on people. I think that's why uh, Riyosef Cairo and others, but Riyosef Cairo is very important in this story, held from him a velt. Okay? Because otherwise, you tell somebody like this, you're in your 20s, you're not even 30 yet, bud, and you already have a couple, and you're going around giving uh, Kabbalah's rushes, all the rest of the war, you know, uh, you, ju- you just came to Panovich. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't care how big of an you are. Get, put your, put 10, 20 years in it. Then, then you can talk. You see? This guy put like two years in it, whatever. Though he has a car selling us, he's, he's, you know, this guy looks like the real thing. What got even more complicated, and to my mind, this is, in some respects, among the chief historical significances of our hero, is that if you see his writings, and, and they only were published in full last year, uh, he, he he believes he's getting Nevoa. Now, when I say Nevoa, I don't want to be technical about it. I don't mean, you know, like the Rambam levels in Nevoa. But he's getting dreams, especially, and things like this, which have significance. So when I use the word Nevoa, what I mean is, I don't know what level or anything like that, but it's not a, it's not a fantasy, not imagination. It's These are messages from upstairs at whatever remove. At whatever remove. And so... Uh, People didn't say, like later on, say, oh, how can you do a thing like this? Uh, as far as I can tell, now begins the period in Jewish history uh, in which there's like, a, I know what I'm going to say sounds going to sound crazy to you. Uh, now begins the period in Jewish history where there's a certain revival of prophecy. The 1500s, 
the 1600s, maybe the 1700s. Uh, what I mean is, you find uh, certain Jewish religious types, all from, who will claim and be accepted at one level or another that they got somehow some kind of message from upstairs, which is quite a statement. Uh, I mean, real messages. Uh, so you have Shlomo Mocho, and later on you have Yosef Karo with the Maggid, as you'll see. Uh, and uh, later you'll have Darizal, obviously, uh, who's like the, the chief of this. And, you know, you can carry force to the Ramchal and the Baal Shem Tov and things like that. It's most unusual, because usually Jewish history, nobody goes around saying, so I guess I got a dream from heaven, you know, I got a I got a, 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 a real communication from Shemaim. But these people did. They made those claims. And they weren't considered, you know, uh, outlandish claims. I mean, anybody can say, I'm sure the people today make their claim, but you say it's nuts. I'm talking about people, the people didn't say they're nuts. They didn't say about Shem they're nuts. You know what I'm saying? Take it seriously. Take it seriously. So, um, he, and, and by the way, you'll see, it's not just uh, rantings. Um, and so, it's all happening in the late 1520s. And he's coming uh, and giving uh, drushes and speeches everywhere. And he formed in his mind the following idea. Or at least he said he was given the idea by someone else, by upstairs. And here comes the weird part. He picked up like the David Ruvani stuff. We're in Dikvah some Mashiach. No question about it. The Mashiach's around the corner. But we have to make it happen ourselves, not Satmar. We have to make it happen ourselves. Now remember, this guy was super from. So it's not Theodor Herzl, but it's like a Theodor Herzl. What do I mean? We got to go and persuade the Europeans to help the Jewish people get a state of Israel uh, with an army and all the rest of it. And 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 the argument we'll make is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That we're going to fight. Obviously, the Turks are ruling Israel. So if we capture from them, it's going to be good for the Christians because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You guys are worried about the Turks conquering you. This will be a big blow against the, the Turks. Now, uh, and, and that's the essential element of his of his uh, uh, preachings, okay? Uh, which is extraordinary in the 1500s. Now, I want to tell you something. Many Jews were like blown away. This is Gavaldic. And Mashiach said is here. Many other Jews, and I don't blame them, were scared to death. And I'll tell you what I mean. And they opposed him. Especially the famous Yato um, Mantino. The big, the big doctor of the Pope and all the rest of it. I'll tell you what I mean. Who appointed you? You know what I'm saying? Who who appointed you? You say you get messages from heaven and that the Jewish people do, should do such and such. Who named you God? Who named you a prophet? You named yourself. You know what I'm saying? How dare you speak? What gives you the right to speak on behalf of the, of the Jewish people? Think for a second what I'm about to tell you. Here's a guy going around to the Christians saying, help the Jews raise a state. And uh, fulfill the Messianic prophecy and help us build an army and conquer the land of Israel from the Muslims. What if the Christians get angry and say, oh, the Jews want to uh, no longer be helpless. Uh, we, we better kill them. Uh, they could kill us. It's the 1500s. It's not even the 1900s. You know? It's the 1500s. One of the main bases of Jewish survival in the Galatia world was the Jews were helpless. You see, there were no threat. So they beat up every once in a while, but they weren't threatened physically because with killing because the Jews aren't a threat to anybody. They have no plans. They're just, they're, as far as the government are concerned, the Christians, I'm saying, the Jews just dreamt pie in the sky. They believe one day Mashiach will come down from heaven 
and bring down a base of Megish made out of fire. So fine, we'll wait for that. <laughs> We're not worried about that. We're Christians. We think that's a fantasy. But the Jews aren't going to do anything physical to make it happen. Here comes a guy who says they should. Here comes a guy who's thinking <coughs> in terms of getting a Jewish state, a Jewish army. So basically he's a theater Herzl guy. I mean, I know he's from, so it's different. But the essence of it is the same, which is Misam Khalish Sarvashov Fidalenu. Who 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 pointed you? You understand? You don't have the right to speak on behalf of the Jewish people if you're doing something that if it shows it wrong, you can get us all killed. Now you claim you're getting all these messages from God. What if you're not? You understand? How can you take that achrais? And they told the Pope and the others, this guy's dangerous, he's crazy, he does not represent the Jewish people, etc., etc., etc. Shells it for a second. Just think what I'm about to tell you. Suppose Shlomo Mocha's plan would happen, and the Christians would raise money and raise a big Jewish army to fight the Turks. So what would the Turks do to all the Jews living in the Turkish Empire? They'd kill them. You see? Now, what was his plan for that? Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Now, in his mind, I can only surmise that he really believed that he's some kind of figure connected with Ikvist and the Mashiach, and that he's uh, a pre-Messianic or something like that. For all I know, he's Mashiach and Yosef. I don't know. And it's going to happen. But this is the problem with people who are 100% sure of something. They don't mind getting everybody else and risking everybody else because they're so sure of their derech. Do you get what I'm saying? What you hear? Uh, what what if you get us wrong? They see the modern Zionism developed in a different way besides the secular side. Uh, the modern Zionism developed only after liberalism hit Europe. You understand? In the 1800s, after the French Revolution, little by little, by the time you get to the late 1800s, Europe, or most of Europe, was already committed to a po policy of political and religious liberalism. And so Jews have a freedom of speech, and it was okay for the Jews to suggest and they were, uh, that they want to get a Jewish state. You understand? When Theodor Herzl and all this came around and said, we're in favor of a Jewish state, he said clearly, we not against the Goyim, and we want the support of the European countries. We don't want to do anything connected to you. We're appealing to you to help us. In other words, he did it in such a way that the Christians, at least, wouldn't get ticked off. But here we're talking about the 16th century. So what if he gets anybody ticked off? Well, our hero didn't care. He was convinced he's right. And uh, he went ahead with it. Now, what's really interesting is he came to see the Pope. The Pope, as I just told you, was Pope Clement VII, who had just had the city sacked. Clement VII was a Medici. The Medici, as popes go, were relatively better to the Jews than other popes. You know, he certainly was a million times better than the later popes in the 1500s, who were terrible. And when he met him, he, you know, our hero was so uh, impressive looking, and he must have had impressive personality. He had everything I told you about. You know, he was highly educated in the European style. Now he's a passionate Jew. He knows how to deal with uh, kings and princes and all that kind of thing. And uh, he's walking in, and he told the Pope that uh, he's, you know, connected with the with the Mashiach side is over here. Now, there's no question that the Pope and the other bishops must have thought like this. He's right, but really he's coming Yashka. You know what I'm saying? In other words, we like the fact he's saying the Mashiach time is here, but, you know, this guy being Jewish is uh, doesn't see the MS. <laughs> as we say today, which I don't blame them whatsoever. They were Catholics. What do you expect? You know, that, that, that's understandable. That, that, that's totally understandable. And he interested the Pope 
let me put it this way. I don't want to go too far, but I'll say the Pope came a chassid of his. Maybe that, that's an exaggeration, but not much, because the Pope did not consider him a nut, and the Pope didn't consider him some charlatan. He didn't consider him some swindler. This guy, there's something about him. That's why, if he can make such an impression on the Pope, a Jew, in the 1500s, he must have really been something. It's a pity we, we, we don't know anything about him. You know, we never saw a picture of him or something like that. He must have been something. The Pope, I tell you. And uh, he even said, uh, he said, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, this was in 1530, I think. So and the guy's only 30 years old. And he said, you better watch out. There's going to be a flood here and you better move to a higher place. And then a, a little while later came a flood. And he said, uh, tell the king of Portugal he should move here and there and there. And, you know, he knew the king of Portugal. Remember, he used to be in his, on his uh, staff. And he said, you better watch out. There's going to be an earthquake in, in Lisbon. And there was an earthquake in Lisbon. Now, how the heck did a guy know? You see what I'm saying? This is Navua. How did a guy know that there's going to be a flood here and, a, and an earthquake there? Adeyomazen, nobody can explain that. And the Pope basically said like this, I'm from Missouri. This guy showed me. <laughs> he said there'd be a flood. It was a flood. He said if the earthquake would be an earthquake. And this guy must be the real thing. Now I repeat, he's the Pope of Rome. So he's not going to become a Jew. But he's going to interpret it in some kind of Yashka type way. And that's be what it is. And he gave him a, spe- a safe passage and a, a, like a special passport. And he said, you can go around and speak and preach. Don't criticize Christianity. That's all I'm going to do. Naturally, our hero can't listen to that. His whole Messiah is to bring down Christianity as he sees it as part of the Messiah time. Now, had he been a real ooh, slippery politician, he would have praised the Christians until they gave him the, the money to raise an army, fought the Turks, established Israel, and after he got a state of Israel, then you go and diss Christianity. But he was too stark, too passionate, committed to what he saw, and uh, and therefore he couldn't keep his mouth shut, so he made a ton of enemies. Now, the other Jews who opposed him Kept telling the Christians, we told you the guy's dangerous, we told you the guy's nuts, don't get us involved in this, he does not represent us. It's sort of like the Rav Dessler says about Shimshin, you know, he said, you know, he's doing his own thing, don't don't blame us for what he's doing. Well, time went on, and he re-met David Ruvaini, and they were so believing and committed to their policy that he said, we're going to go to the main guy, who's the leader of the Christians against the Turks, that's the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and we'll try to explain to him, the Pope will give him a, a letter, which he did, Pope gave him a letter, and uh, we'll try to, to convince the Holy Roman Emperor that he should back our plan. This was stupid. Now, they didn't know that, I'm speaking with hindsight. This was stupid. The reason they say it's stupid is, Charles V was uh, the, more or less the most powerful ruler of that time, he was a Habsburg. From his mother's side, he inherited the throne of Spain. From his father's side, he inherited the Holy Roman Empire position, plus the Netherlands and Belgium and Austria, this, that, and the other. He had huge territories, plus the New World, you know, uh, South America and Central America and all that. So he had huge power. And he is so Catholic, and he's such a European... Uh, nobleman aristocrat that he looks on the Jews as junk below junk. You know what I'm saying? Junk below junk. And the only good thing about it is he was always short of money. So he, you know, in Spain, he persecuted the Jews with the Inquisition. In Germany, circumstances made it that he had to 
be a little nicer to him. That's the story of Yozelman of Rosheim. But our hero went to see the Holy Roman Emperor in 1532, and he said, listen, i got a project over here. I want you to help us raise an army. You're fighting the Turks. Uh, during the 1530s, Charles V had uh, big plans uh, to repel the Turkish attacks, uh, which were not so successful. But he, I remember he um, launched invasions of North Africa, Tunisia, which were more successful. These involved the major wars. By the way, you'll be surprised to hear there was a from book that goes into all the details of this stuff, which is written in the 16th century. Uh, by Yosef Cohn. It was a from guy in Italy. I don't know why he was interested. But you see, it was a fascination in current events, history. It's a Hebrew book by a from guy who uh, gives you all the details of the wars that were going between the, the Christians and the Turks. I mean, great details. The Venetian admirals, I remember Andrea Doria, and Charles V, and Ferdinand, and Suleiman, and Barbarossa, all the actors who were big machers in the international scene, killing and fighting, are all in that safer. It's on the Hebrew books. It's a very, it's a classic book. The History of the Kings of France and, and Turkey. Uh, Joseph this finally had interest in this stuff. Anyway, whatever the case is, he made a big mistake. Because when he went to see the emperor, uh, first of all, the emperor, very from bigoted, uh, Catholic. And uh, to Charles V, he's looking at a guy, all he sees is a renegade. The guy was born Catholic, and now he went back to Jewish. He's high Misa just for that. What about the fact he represents a kingdom, and what about the political plans, all the rest of it? You have to understand, to an aristocrat and a Catholic, like Charles V, the very notion of a Jewish army is tarted to the it's, it's revolting. You get it? Jews are not soldiers, not meant to be soldiers. If they ever had any power, they'd be terrible. That'd actually be worse than, than the Christians versus the Muslims. You know, from a purely Catholic Christian point of view, a revived Judaism, like horrible. Believe me, when the state of Israel became a state in 1948, Catholic Church turned inside out like a pretzel, tried to figure out Lafishitas Catholicism, how to understand this, because the Jews are supposed to be a cursed race ever since they killed Yashka, and... You know, they should not, Adra, but they should be in Gullis. They should have no state of their own. And now in 1940, it became a state. It had been a big problem for the Catholic theologians, believe me. And that's when things were more liberal. Imagine in the 16th century, when things were the opposite of liberal. You know, let me just switch this for a second. So I had to switch this. Uh, what did I say? The Catholic Church at that time was uh, facing the Protestant Reformation. They were in a super right wing mood, let's put it. And a very anti-Semitic mood. And so our hero couldn't see that. And so when he went to the Holy Roman Emperor, he thought he's giving him a practical plan. But all the emperor saw was an ex-Jew who's Chai of Misa for sliding back into Judaism, which is the biggest possible error from a Catholic. See, for Charles V, he couldn't get past the fact that he was a Jew who, who switched back from Catholic to, 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 to Judaism. And remember, he was born Catholic. And therefore, it's Mamash Chai Misa. And um, basically, Charles V said, I'm not interested in anything you have to say. And he arrested him. I mean, he spoke to him for a couple hours. That's the report we have, which itself is interesting. He heard him out. But then he said, what I, he, he did what I told you. And uh, he arrested him. 
and it was given over to the Catholic Church to judge as a what? Judge the one question that's no gay to all. And that is if you're Catholic and you switch to Judaism, are you Chaimis? And the answer is yes. And so uh, the church condemned him to be burned at the stake as a heretic. Uh, this happened, uh, I think, in Mantua, was it? Verona, in northern Italy, not far away from, too far away from where the interview had been held. It's a very dramatic scene uh, because you didn't often have uh, the burning of heretics at that time in Italy. Um, fairly rare, especially Jews. Most places in Italy, the Jews weren't as big mouthed as he was, and therefore they were able to find uh, protection. You understand? Uh, that he, like I said before, he he marched to his own drummer, and he called like he saw it, and he went out in in a blaze of glory. By which I mean, it's very famous, and they can make a movie out of this. I'm sure they will. As he was being tied up to be burned at the stake, think about being burned alive. How that hurts. A messenger from the emperor came and said, "If you, if you were Kaiser, and admit that you were wrong, and go back to being a Catholic, then we'll spare your life." And he said, "No way." Bin Rebbe Sevilla, you know, I'm going back. That's what he said. Bin Rebbe Sevilla, I'm going back to my uh, natural home. Knows uh, I, I, I want to die as a Jew, uh, which literally means Makadishim Shemayim Barabim. I mean, you can't let me put it this way: you can't get a more dramatic Kiddush Hashem Barabim than what I just described because he was burnt. That's why he was only 32 years old. He lived a short life. Burned him at the stake. Now, what's shot with this story? He wouldn't have an army. I mean, he went to the emperor to get his support with money to raise a Jewish army. To this day, I don't get it. Um, he's a great man, but I don't get it. Like, what was the plan in the 1500s? You get There were very few Jews around. So he would raise the money. Where would the Jews come for the army? Uh, and pr- assuming, you know, fantasy-wise, that he could raise an army. You really think the Christians would let the Jews own the Holy Land? They would, you know, let them, the Jews wipe out the Muslims, and then the Christians would attack the Jews. <laughs> to me, this is a repulsion. But I'm thinking in, in regular terms, in Olam Hazed terms. He was thinking Olam Haba terms. You understand? He said, Hashem will make it that we'll beat the Turks, we'll conquer Eretz Yisrael, and the Christians won't be able to do anything about it, because Hashem can do anything. And I see in my dreams, I'm serious, Meaning his nevuas, his chalomas, I mean the chalomas in the high sense, not the low sense. These visions that this is going to work out, the Mashiach site. Now, here's the thing. The person I just described was not a Rosh Hashiva, was not an Abbasin, you know, the typical rabbinical profile, nothing of that at all. He wasn't a rabbi. He learned, to the degree he learned anything, over the course of two, three years. Right, something like that, and then he went on his ways following his grand projects. It was an incredible darshaner, we know, but he turned people on and turned people off, as we saw, because many people were afraid he's going to get us in trouble, but the other people were unbelievably turned on to his thinking, did tshuva, all the rest of it. You know, how do you classify, from the yeshiva perspective, let's put it that way, I shouldn't use that expression, how do you classify this guy? Right? Now, there's no question that his uh, manner of his death, he's a kadosh. Nobody's going to deny that. But how do you explain... And that's a very important part of the story. I explain what's shot with him. Uh, it's not clear, but the from world goes by Gedolim. And uh, not long after his death, which must have made a huge Roshan in the Jewish world. Imagine you heard about this living at that time, 1532, 1533, around the world, especially in South Europe, 
not far away in the Turkish Empire. Not long after this, Yosef Karo in the Balkans, not far away, starts to have his nevuas. Starts to have what you call Magad Mesharm, the famous Sefer, in which the Mishnah comes and talks to him and gives him uh, all kind of uh, uh, communications. And uh, this is a strange part of the story of Yosef Karo, but nevertheless, it happened in a Magad. So basically, there's an angel of some kind or another. However you explain it, the Magad always says, I am the Mishnah personified, whatever it is. Like I said before, cutting through all the technical language, it's a kind of nevua. Either either he's made up and he was nuts, or it's a kind you know, it's, or it's a kind of nevua, right? Now we don't say Biosakar was nuts, so there was some some sort of heavenly message. And not long after this happens, he starts to get for the first time messages which are recorded not in chronological order, but they're recorded in the Sefer Magamasharm. I have a very good edition from a couple of years ago. Which has like uh, the Aramaic and then Ivrit translate Targum Lush and Kodesh on the side. It's quite a nice edition. And I happen to know where it is. I marked it off long ago. And it's in Susa Brocha. And I'll read it to you in the Hebrew translation. You know, this is approximately a few months after uh, the burning of the martyr of Shlomo Mocho. And the angel says, it has a whole long uh, uh, speech to him, right? It's based on the Pasuk, Lavinia Mino Mar Yedid Hashem. How's it going? You know, Lavinia Mar Yedid Hashem. Chavit Nashel Chavilov, Kalyan Moving Sefav Shachain. Isn't that right? Something like that. And the angel has all these conversations with him. And part of this conversation, the first one it has is, Vazaka Oishal, he saw Ferris Israel Barabim, Lakadashem Shemayim, before Hesio. I assure you, Yosef Karo, Who's about 44, 45 years old. <laughs> so you will also one day be able to do what this guy did. The angel tells the Yosef Karim. And you will also be Namisha Carbon. Because that's a language that Kiddush Hashem is like a Oila on a carbon Reich Nechaya. Right? And your afer from your burned body will be like, you know, like, uh, like Yitzhak, you know, Katie's Yitzhak. The afer on the Mizbeach. And before that happens, I, the person of the, the Magan, I'm telling you, that I'll be, Hashem is telling you, I'll be Mizaki you to finish. The safer you're working on, which will put you on the map, right? That the Gantzavelt will be Yonik from your safer, right? And we'll learn from it the safer that you're calling Beis Yosef. Your fame, remember he's 44 years old, this is before he became famous, will resound throughout the world wherever Torah is learned, in all the Batak and the Seas and Batak and Rashas. And whenever your Savior, Beis Yosef, will be mentioned, Beis Medrash, because in other words, you're going to write to Beis Yosef in Shulchan Aruch, and then you'll be burned at the stake. And every time people mention it, it'll cause the afer from your dead body to rise like Keturus Besamim. 
Just imagine when you make a Kiddush Hashem Barabim, Kasher Shlomo Bechiri Hanichri Mocha Like Shlomo, my beloved. Whoa. So the angel is telling Rabbi Yosekaro that in Shemayim, this is called Shlomo Bechiri, from the word Bocher Amois Rabbi Avo. Shlomo Bechiri, Shlomo, my, my chosen one. Hanichri Mocha. So that's him. Shanimsha, I'll read you the Aramaic. That's mystical talk. They was anointed with the most sacred oil from Shemayim. But all the Lerots and the Mizbechi, sometimes prepared like a carbon. And you also, Yosef Kar, will get to that one day. Right? So you see, that in the mind and in the communications to Rabbi Yosekaro, we're told that in Shemayim they're Mashav, Shlomo Mocho. That's my point, right? Uh, this Sefer didn't get published in the 1600s, but the notion that he was a Kadosh and all the rest of it got out there big time. Like I say, I don't know today, nobody knows what exactly was the plan in 1532. You're going to get money from the Christians to raise an army and fight and conquer Israel, and the Christians will let you do it. But this is how he saw things. As a result, Shlomo Mochov enters the Jewish imagination in a very, in the Torah imagination, in a very interesting way because of this, uh, what's the right word, Haskama from Yosef Karo. No, not from Yosef Karo, from the Malach that's talking to Yosef Karo. Because what I just read you was what the Malach said to him. That's incredible. You saying That's incredible. And people don't say the Malach is, you know, uh, uh, making it up, figuring imagination or something like that. This is why, as far as I'm aware, that Shlomo Mocha becomes a, a classic figure and enters um, Torah literature, I would say, in most unusual way, the Hainu, uh, uh, his clothes are in Prague uh, when um, somehow or other, he was a martyr, Burned at the stake. Somebody got a hold of his clothes. He wasn't uh, burned wearing Jewish clothes. Uh, somehow, but just imagine to from Jews what uh, uh, the clothing of a of a kadosh is. Now this is strange. We're not usually into saints and relics and uh, you know I mean uh, what shall I say? You know the fingernail, the villain or something like that. The way the Catholics are. Because they really are. They're into the fingernail of saying so-and-so. But there's a little bit of it, especially in 16th century. And so the Jews, who were living in Catholic environment, uh, came to regard his physical stuff uh, of of this martyr as being themselves Kaddish in some way or another. And um, it's very interesting to me. I remember I have a book called, um, what's it called? The History of uh, Simchas Torah. From Avim Yari. I mentioned it here. Uh, that's the book on Simplest Torah. And that author took you around the world and gathered all the information of all the communities, how they celebrate Simplest Torah, written 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And I remember very clearly, uh, I'm not, I just don't have the, this advice to go and pick up, pull the book out now. He says in Prague, on Simplest Torah, they would take out, like Catholics do, Lahavdal, 
the church, they take out the relics of the mar of the saints or the martyrs. Did the Jewish community in Prague would take out the clothes? I think it was the tzitzis or something like that, the clothing of uh, Shlomo Mocho, and uh, they would take it out and, exp and and people would look at it and see it together with the Sefer Torah, because uh, it's the idea that the Sefer Torah is the Torah. But you know, honey, Babli Tevshoi. Here's a guy that was a Sefer Torah. It was like a Sefer Torah that was burned, so to speak. And uh, if you go to Prague Museum today, which I was last year before Corona existed, if we can imagine such a time, <laughs> been so long, in the summer of 2019 when I led a group to Prague. So if you go, you know, there, was a, there were nine shuls and one of them was the Meisel Synagogue. And the Meisel Synagogue in the Prague ghetto has been turned into a Jewish museum. Not too bad. Uh, those in my group who are listening will, will recall this. Uh, or any of you have been in Prague. And uh, that's the one that has like the... Uh, Museum type exhibits and things like that. <laughs> you know, Prague just wanted to talk about the Nota Behuda stuff, the other stuff, Tosis Yanta stuff, and all the rest of that physical. And they have that uh, section on the clothing. You can Google this. If you're interested in what I'm talking about today, just Google clothes of Solomon Molko or Shlomo Molko. You'll see it. And the museum, being museums, they talk about the fact, oh, some of it's worn away, but now we use uh, modern uh, preservation techniques with the vitrine and stuff. I don't know what they're talking I don't understand this stuff. You know, it's in glass and all the rest of it. And you see the Kalem, the clothes of, of the martyr, Shlomo Mocha. Now, he never was in Prague, <laughs> right? But it ended up over there. And um, it's a, it, it, that it's considered a big item even today. And um, as some will recall, um, had his scissors there, although the scissors are not on display, if I remember correctly, just like his outer tunic or something like that. And, I mean, it didn't look anything so special to me, but the fact that it's from Shlomo Mocha makes it, you know, like, wow. And uh, what's famous is that when you get a question of how you do Hilchus Tzitzis and how many Krichos you have, so, you know, the Shulchan Aruch says, do you do uh, 7 and 8 and 11 and 13? But uh, the Tosis Yontav, Alecha Hamudas and others who were in Prague, uh, so in those, they saw the uh, Tal's cotton and the garments of uh, Shlomo Mocha uh, that survived. And uh, he had, you know, 10, 5, 6, and 5, right? Uh, and both of these are mentioned, therefore, in the halachic literature, you know, in the Berhetev and in the, obviously, Mishnabura and the Kavchayim and the Mogan Avram, Lechon Chamudos. That's where you see Shlomo Mocha, that his titus, okay? Now, why should he be mentioned over here? Like, who cares what his sisters were like? Maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. How many Kriyachas he had? No, no, no. Yosef Kar held a belt from him. The other also did. And so, he didn't write a safer in the classic sense. Although there is a person that the last year collected his writings, and known and unknown, and uh, put them all out, uh, called Kisri Shlomo Mochel. Uh, Mouch came out last year. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in that, and you see his dreams, and his visions, and the way he touched up how his Ikhvist the Mashiachah, you can see it, but, um, you know, he leaves with a strange, you know, image and character. There's no question that the manner of his death, he was a Kodesh Kadashim. I just told you the fact. You can't get better than that. They burned him at the stake, and he could have gotten out of it. Right? Today, you'd say like this. Yes, I promise to be Catholic, and then when nobody's looking, run away to Turkey. You know, like that. Nope. The insistent being burnt. Uh, his... His ideas, you know, were not 
I won't say in this Pasha and all the rest of it. I mean, unless you go to Zionism in the 20th century, uh, which came in a secular way, he wasn't a secular at all. He was saying that this is the way, you know, it's meant to be if you understand what the Tanakh is written. Uh, but again, it wasn't simply his analysis of Tanakh. He was saying he, he was given the vision that this is how it's supposed to go. Uh, we'll never know. And it's a man of mystery as far as I'm concerned. You understand? But he must have been somebody uh, unbelievably gifted because not many people would make a powerful Rosham on people as far apart as the Pope and Rios of Cairo. You know what I mean? And the King of Portugal, Bashaito. Uh, and uh, you see, as I said before, that, uh, let's put it this way, I can hear that people who met him thought, maybe he's like a Moshe Ben Yosef or, or something. You know, uh, and that doesn't happen to too many people. Uh, and today's when it happened, fifth of Atavis. So uh, uh, th- there's a story of somebody that's a little bit off the beaten track. That, that I wish it was going to be. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.